Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octivigate companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers to have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. On this episode, we are joined by researcher, podcast host, and recently revealed experiencer, Exo Academian, a.k.a. Darren King. Yeah, now we got to see his face. It's like watching Batman be unmasked. I, admittedly, like, it was weird addressing him as Darren. Yeah. Like, I, I, it felt wrong somehow, but, uh, no, that said, it was uh, a lot of fun. This is our first time repeat guest who's yeah. come back on the show so we're doing something right i mean and he and he even said he'd be willing to do it again yeah, yeah. so either either uh he's just as insane as we are or yeah like you said we're doing something right who knows uh but no he, as always he is intensely informative i feel like my brain is usually sizzling bacon every time i talk to him but that's yeah. a great thing oh yeah no i had a i had a great time and i after you know when we read through the questions i was like you know I, I knew what we were getting ourselves into talking to him because he's such just an he's a very well educated person and it comes off in everything that he says and we tried to step up our game with the questions and I think I think we succeeded we did something all right yeah all right well uh, let's just let him listen to it then all right let's do it Line with Darren King, aka Exo Academian. Darren, thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be with you all again. I just heard from you that I'm the only first time uh, return guest, so that's yes. quite the honor. Yes, yes, you absolutely are. Uh, and you know, I mean, you're, you're de- it's a good thing because there are certain other guests which we wouldn't want to come on again, and if they <laughs> did, something went horribly wrong. So we're glad it's you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So going right into it, the last time we had you on our show, you were engaged with research into Buddhism, consciousness, and you were currently reading Laosa Shen's The Three-Body Problem. Since then, how has your ongoing research evolved, and what sort of text do you find yourself working with now a year on? Wow, that is a much more massive question than you can possibly probably comp- comprehend, because <laughs> that the last year uh, has been absolutely insane. Um, I think that uh, when I look back at the last year, if I had any questions about synchronicity uh, being a major player in what happens in our world and actually it not being this outlier phenomena, but something indicative of some deeper structure of reality, it's, it's giving us some sort of feedback. Um, I would say that definitely that's what the last year has been like for me, where it's just been a crazy series of synchronicities. Um, and I, I hardly even know where to begin. It's, it's, it's like retreats that I went to, like the Monroe Institute retreat I went to last year, met some people there, had some sightings, had some uh, downloads that started happening after that experience. So um, it's just been sort of one thing after another. And I think that when I first started my podcast, Point of Convergence, I really thought it was going to be this little thing I did on my own to sort of, you know, 
just explore this topic. And I thought it'd be fairly anonymous and maybe a, you know, a few people would watch or listen. Um, and then instead, it seemed to really gather people. Uh, and it made enough of an impact that I started being asked to go speak at conferences and go to personal retreats and things. So then I was like faced with, you know, well, unless I wear an alien mask, people are going to know what I look like <laughs> and, and my name, perhaps. Because when I was on with you all last time, you didn't see me, right? You just no. saw the alien mask. Um, so a lot's changed since since I was last on, just in terms of becoming more public. Uh, and and that's, I think, really ramped up. It's almost like stepping into the stream of of what's happening uh which is something larger than me but by by you know taking off the mask so to speak and stepping into that it's been just a, a crazy adventure ever since where my understanding of the phenomenon and even of reality itself the construct of reality has gotten ever more expansive and it's just been a wild ride it's very interesting uh not to get too uh too heavy too quick but I am curious. Uh, I know these those sorts of experiences are often very difficult to verbalize, but the download experiences you went through, could you go into those a little more? Yeah, I mean, the, basically what would happen is it was quite a strange uh, experience when it was going on because um, sometimes, sometimes it would happen when I was sleeping. I would have dreams that just seemed to be um, of a different nature. They seemed to have a different uh, tenor to them that was different than any kind of dream I had experienced before. Almost like... The dream was the container in which some sort of information was being inserted. Um, it's interesting because since then, I've actually read about um, that very thing, that because the human mind in our waking state, when we have our normal default mode online, is actually quite constricted and it's actually filtering out massive elements of reality. So I've actually read about some non-human intelligences actually inserting information in the dream state specifically because the human mind is less filtered and, and less um, parameterized kind of thing at that point. Uh, so that very much fits with what I would experience. Sometimes it would mean I would wake up with some new bit of information in my mind and it would feel like a fragment, like I didn't know where it fit. It didn't seem like the further iteration of something I was thinking about. It would just sit out there and then something would happen uh, in my waking experience that goes, ah, that's how that connects. So, so I would have these downloads, these fragments of information that seemed to happen before they would actually become useful, but they're sitting around in my head and then almost like puzzle pieces, something would happen. I would put this together with this and this together with this. And on top of that, I have what I would call these brightness moments. This is how I've described them, where it might be a book I come across. It might be a podcast I might see. It might be someone I, I pass in the street. It could be many, many different things, but I just have this additional sense uh, that I need to pay attention to this, that this somehow is, is part of a bigger narrative that I'm, I'm sort of being having knitted together for me, basically. So that's kind of what the experience has been like. Oh, that, that's fascinating. It it reminds me, it's almost like a, a more advanced version of, I believe, was it in American Cosmic, The Book Encounters? Yes. Yes, okay. So yeah, no, D.W. Pasuka, she talks about how often people have their initial brush with the anomalous, and then they will have a sort of a coincidental encounter with a book or a documentary or form of media that will sort of present them with the structure of understanding they need to kind of contextualize that event. It kind of sounds like you're engaged in a long series of book encounters. Exactly. And and to, to use your word there, contextualization, a word that I've really, uh, you know, grabbed onto is recontextualization, because what I found is the more I walk this out in life, the further back in my lifetime, 
events become recontextualized, which is very, very interesting. It's almost like a reverse time flow or something mm -hmm. where things that happened in the past that used to mean a certain thing to me suddenly take on a new level of meaning because of something that happens in what would be the future to those events, right? So it, it almost is like a, a meaning set being put together, but in reverse order of the flow of time. That is fascinating, and it hurts my brain, frankly. I, uh, <laughs> although every time we're reading a book and time starts coming up, I know my brain is about to about to fry a little bit. So that's that's pretty normal. Um, so I guess so. I mean, then our next question was, what made you uh, make the decision to step out from the veil of anonymity? But it seems like that uh, you already touched on that. There, it was the conferences you were being invited to. You were uh, not so much stepped out of the shadows, but were dragged out of it. Indeed, that's kind of what happened. I mean, I was not really intending to. I thought I would just sort of continue on my merry way. But then uh, people started asking me to, you know, attend these retreats and these conferences, and they need some personal information for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and so I was then confronted with, okay, I can either step into this to a whole new level, or I can continue to sort of hang back in the shadows. And at that point, it just felt like the right thing to, to move forward. And as soon as I did, um, it just, again, the flow of synchronicities and, and amazing connections that I made, I uh, just, you know, opened up to a whole new level of magnitude, which made me feel like it was definitely the right decision. It's almost like, you know, stepping out and sacrificing your anonymity, you were rewarded in a way. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Absolutely. It feels like this cooperative process that's been step, I take a step, something else takes a step, you know, and it's yeah. like, you do this, this will happen. And, and, um, and that's definitely felt like there's some sort of uh, in tandem step process for sure. It's not quite, uh, you know, one to one here, but it reminds me of uh, the visitors trying to get Streber to give up chocolate. <laughs> right, right. Now, exactly. I, now, I mean, obviously, so it's had profound personal effects, this decision you made. But has there been any negative repercussions? Anyone in your life who is now looking at you a little funny? Not really. No, I mean, um, I think that. Uh, I've been so immersed in this world that most of the people I, I deal with on a regular basis, uh, you know, are already into this topic. Um, the other people that are not into this topic, you know, they kind of just humor me and they kind of nod <laughs> yeah. and go, hey, but how about the weather? You know, and they'll try to change the subject kind of thing. But there hasn't been any massive blowback in terms of, hey, I'm concerned about your mental health or, uh, you know, what are you doing? Like nothing like that. I think that because I'm able to present uh, data that, supports a lot of these notions and and because this has be, you know been gaining ground in our culture it's not nearly as outlandish as it was you know mm. 10 20 years ago i we've had uh similar experiences although like you we mostly um associate with other weirdos so we, we are in our mm -hmm. own little strange bubble uh, yeah so moving into our next question uh so when we spoke last time uh, we discussed the potential ufo consciousness connection and we know that that's a very common theme on your show as well as our own when it comes to defining that connection, however, in the many books we've encountered it, it's usually very vague how, it, how that connection is described. So we were wondering if from your perspective, you could take a crack at how would you define the connection between what's going on in our heads and the ships in the sky? Great question. And that's the, 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 you know, the uh, $10 million question. Uh, and I think one thing I would say is that a lot of people go in the order from ship in the sky to something in my head and i would actually turn that on its head and say that perhaps the thing in the sky is actually less important and it's more uh secondary to what actually is going on in the mind um and 
in terms of, you know, visual cues may be part of what is being delivered into our consciousness. You know, I, I've mentioned before, for instance, a, a case that I found really fascinating where um, Dr. Joseph Burks, uh, a friend of mine, he had this experience where he was working with a prime contactee, uh, what he calls a prime contactee, someone who just has an unca uncanny number of sightings and interactions and seems to almost be, almost be able to produce C5 kind of experiences on demand. But he one time was in his kitchen, this, this prime contactee who'd come from Russia, and he was seeing something up in the corner of the room, and it was actually making his tear ducts tear up. So it's not that it was like emotional, it was just like it literally causing some sort of physiological reaction. And so Joe at the time had this notion, I wonder what is really going on here? What level of reality is this happening? And he said, why don't you close your eyes and keep looking in that corner of the room though? He closed his eyes and he could still see the object even through his closed eyes. You know, so in other words, it's like in the interior visual cortex, but when we have our eyes open, we assume we're seeing it out there in the world, right? But in that case, it was actually still there even when he closed his eyes and couldn't see the external world, which raises all sorts of interesting questions about at what level of reality is this happening? Um, and I think the answer in terms of the relationship between sightings and consciousness is that it's happening ultimately at some deeper level of reality from which we get derivative aspects like space-time and quantum theory, right? I've been talking about this on the podcast. And so what's fascinating to me is that a lot of research that's being done in physics, you know, really cutting-edge physics like Nima Arkani Hamed is a physicist who's been looking into this, and even completely putting the UFO phenomenon aside, what they are finding is that we have convincing evidence that space-time cannot be foundational. So if we're looking to try to define a model of reality based on space-time, we're going to go astray because we already see evidence suggesting it must be derivative of some deeper structure. And I think my sort of working hypothesis is that a lot of these others are working at that deeper structure. And that's why we get strange anomalies, things that show up that don't make sense, even sometimes things that appear absurd. It's because you, know, you can think about almost like a higher dimensional object um, being translated into a lower dimensional frame where you take like a three-dimensional object and you crunch it down into two, it's going to do some strange things and you can't really maintain the same level of information. Something like that. But either way, the point being that if we keep thinking that space-time is fundamental, is the real world, then we're going to be, I think, ongoingly frustrated and confounded by this phenomenon because I think what it's suggesting to us, thinking back to Jacques Vallée's famous statement, that what the UFO phenomenon teaches us is that we do not understand space-time say that's true, but we we'll go one step further. It teaches us, along with all sorts of other revelations arising in quantum physics and whatnot, that space-time is not ultimately real in the most foundational sense. And that's why they can interject into it from this deeper structure and produce these strange visual phenomena along with strange experiences in our consciousness. So I'm I'm going to go on a limb and ask a, a weird question. So another uh, individual that we talked to for our show was Dean Radin. Uh, about about his book Real Magic, and in that he talks a lot about the power of consciousness to affect our reality around us. So when we're saying space time isn't real, I mean, do you tend to go towards more of an idealist philosophy that this is all a mental construct, or is it uh, somewhat physical, somewhat psychic? Yeah, the former. I, I definitely see that. Um, I definitely have adopted an idealist perspective um, for a variety of reasons, partly because of my own experiences partly because I've seen just so much compelling evidence that physicalism is just not not tenable as a model whatsoever. And, and on top of that, 
we um, it's kind of convenient to postulate a physical world that exists separate from consciousness, but we actually have no empirical evidence for that, nor could we ever really produce that kind of evidence because we can, of course, separate ourselves from the construct in which we're in. So you could still, you can do things where I've made this point many times, and I've really paid a lot of attention to Bernardo Castrop's work, and he's really been someone who's put forward a lot of new information, new ideas about idealism, and he's developed a specific version called analytic idealism. But his, his point is that you can model nature with science, so you know that how nature will behave, but that doesn't mean you really understand what nature is, right? So it's like, it's like you can, I made this point on Limona Frames recently, you can notice that good things happen when you build your village at the foot of a river, right? You can realize that fish come down, um, you get water, fresh water to keep you alive, you can use it to travel downstream, right? That doesn't mean you understand the full atmospheric process of how Water you know, evaporates on the ocean, goes up into the clouds, goes over to the, the sky, falls in the mountains, comes back downstream to you, right? All you need to do is know, hey, good things happen when we build villages by rivers, right? And that's kind of what science has done. We've, we've modeled nature's behavior in such a way that we've been able to transform our civilization. So in that sense, it's been very efficacious. But we've, we've made the mistake of saying that, therefore, we understand what nature is. We really don't. And Bernardo's point, and I think it's a good one, is that the most parsimonious answer is that all there is is consciousness. And what we perceive as the physical world is just another aspect of that consciousness. And that actual physical reality may be in service to the development of consciousness rather than the other way around as, as physicalism would have us believe. And that's partly why we get strange things like what we consider synchronicity. These are actually signs of something happening in consciousness that impacts physical reality. And like you said, with Dean Radin's done some of the best work in this, where we literally see uh, thought alone impacting physical reality in ways that shouldn't be possible if physicalism is actually the correct model. Yeah, several of those experiments uh, had us all screeching like howler monkeys. So, <laughs> uh, World-shattering in their implications. Uh, it, yeah. it is interesting because I, I have often also wondered with all the news out there recently about uh, you know the AI revolution trying to build true artificial intelligence, uh, and it, it just struck me while you were describing there the main issue that we will never be able to get empirical evidence that this is the real reality because you can't separate from consciousness. I wonder if a neat solution to that will be making another consciousness to do it for us. But then, that said, we'll have no way of knowing if that's a true consciousness or if we're making it say that. Exactly. One of the one of the big questions, is, as you all know, is, uh, you know, will AI actually become conscious at some point? I think that's actually what I would call a category error. I think that, again, because of some of the assumptions baked into physicalism, we assume that if you... So, for instance, with physicalism, if you believe that our consciousness is just an epiphenomena of neurochemical reactions in our brain, then certainly that you could probably reproduce with a, a kind of false neuronal network in a computer deep learning program, right? You can sort of more mirror those kind of neurons uh, in deep learning processes. But the, the reality, I think, is that our brains are more like transducers, non-locally, uh, you know, transducing uh, a, a stream of consciousness that is, that is held somewhere else. And so if that's the case, then, then even if you could build something like the hardware of the brain, that's not going to produce consciousness because our consciousness is not ultimately produced by our brain, even though physicalism would have you believe that. And so even though people really think this is going to happen, I think we'll have an incredibly advanced 
uh, uh, mirroring of what looks like consciousness, but it won't ultimately be conscious in the same way that we are. Right. Because it's more like for us, I guess it's more like we're almost a filter of the consciousness rather than the source of consciousness itself. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of that kind of that deep schism between physicality and the more conscious based model, uh, we've noticed kind of a resurgence among ufologists, a, a resurgence of the claims of the U.S. government possessing actual downed craft from other intelligent societies or actors. Um, how how can we rectify, if this is true, how can we rectify the physical reality of a craft with the consciousness-based model? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think um, some of the, the you know, so-called nuts and bolts folks would, would point that out. They'll say, well, we have you know, physical craft uh, where you can pick up and feel it in your hand, right? Um, so, so that's more than just some sort of illusory thing. It's more than just like a virtual reality. It's actually, you know, nuts and bolts. Um, I would say a few things there. I mean, even, even Valet talked about this, right? Valet talked about there both being both like a, a psychical aspect to this phenomenon and a physical one, right? Not only yep. in terms of people being physically impacted in their bodies, sometimes for good, sometimes not, right? But also, absolutely, there being, there being, you know, tangible, uh, you know, manifestations in what we perceive as physical reality, which again, I would say the question there is, is what we perceive actually what we think it is, is, is part of the question. Because if you, for instance, if we say, use the metaphor of like a dream, right? I've, I've mentioned before my podcast that I've uh, experimented a lot with lucid dreaming. And um, I use this supplement called galantamine, which really, and I follow a certain protocol, which allows me to uh, be able to instigate these lucid dreams um, where I'm able to become lucid in the dream and recognize I'm dreaming. But because of that, I'll, I'll, I'll test the physical world as I perceive it, right? And I've mentioned before, I one time was, was walking along a red brick building and I went up and I, I pressed my hand against the building and sort of like pull, pulled my hand down the palm of my hand and felt like the tearing of my skin, right? So, and what I was testing was, is there anything about the granularity of this experience that feels less real than our waking experience, right? And then I saw grass and I bent down into like looks microscopically close to the grass and I smelled the grass, right? And I felt the soil. Bottom line is there is nothing in that experience that was any less tangibly real than our waking experience, which of course begs the question, how do we know this is not a shared dream as well, right? Just because it has internal consistency doesn't mean it's ultimately real. Um, and in the, in the dream, if I were to say to you all that, I know this red brick building exists somewhere because I tore my hand against it. You would say, well, that's kind of silly. It was just a dream, right? And, and so you, you could make the same argument here. So then the question becomes, the issue may not be how do these intelligences project physical craft into a physical reality, but more perhaps, how do they interject something that seamlessly enters our dream state, our dreamscape in such a way that we can't distinguish it from the other elements of our dream that we're in and not even aware of. That is fascinating and terrifying. I have way too many nightmares for that theory to be true, but that said, it makes a whole lot of sense. It, 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 I don't know why it jogged my memory or jogged my brain about this, but there's um, somebody like in the, 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 the ghost hunting world that we're friends with, and he his name is John Tenney. He's also into ufology and all that, but uh, 
he has this story where he talks about how he went to like a diner that didn't, doesn't seem to exist. He hasn't been able to find it since then. And the one, th- and he always talks about like how physical it was. He had conversations with people there. And after hearing your story, the only thing I'm thinking of as well, especially knowing him and how the thing, the kind of things that he practices, I could absolutely see that he accidentally stumbled into this place as a lucid dream and had no idea. Like, and that's what right. that made me think of. Well, and it, it does make me wonder about the theory that I forwarded also on the show that paranormal phenomenon are dreams escaping into physical reality. It's a very similar concept there. Yeah. The way I think about all of these different phenomena and the different sort of, it's almost like what we might describe as interpenetrating realities, right? But then if you think about it as interpenetrating dreamscapes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you think about, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, movies that have talked about interpenetrating dreamscapes and even levels of dreams, right? Um, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Again, once you get beyond this notion that of being attached to a physical world actually having to be something independent of consciousness, once you see the whole thing as just elements of consciousness, dreamscapes, by the way, I would say that doesn't make it any less real. I mean, I think it's one thing sometimes people get nervous about this because they suddenly say, well, when I wake up, you know, my dream's over and I, I don't exist anymore. The dream characters don't, right? But obviously, if we're in a shared dream, and this is one, one of Bernardo Castro's points, if we're in a shared dream where, you know, if I look at, uh, you know, the Eiffel Tower and you look at the Eiffel Tower, so we're seeing pretty much the same thing. It's because we're actually characters in another dreamscape held in a larger mind or what he would call mind at large. In that sense, it's just as real as what we perceive as a physical world. Uh, it's just that it's it's ultimately derivative of a different kind of process. So once you get used to thinking about things that way, and I have, uh, it, it actually, a lot of things begin to make sense, at least theoretically. And and I don't feel like I've lost anything by letting go of this notion of there being a physical world that somehow is distinct from consciousness. Well, thank you for that. That is a, a very eloquent answer. And it puts, uh, it's it's the proper way of saying several points that we have blumbered through on our own show. <laughs> yeah. So it's good to hear that someone can do it. Yeah. So moving into our next question here. Uh, so we have we recently read through Jacques, uh, Jacques Vallée's Messengers of Deception and D.W. Pasuka's American Cosmic. And between the two, we found ourselves engaged in an ongoing discussion regarding the resurgence of UFO religion in the modern day. One big question being what happens if full disclosure does come, hypothetically, and it re- let's say it revealed that the powers that be are either as lost as the rest of us, or it revealed a purely materialist ET origin for the phenomenon. Do you think that the concept of UFO religion could endure those revelations? Is it something that is, at this point, like Pasulka suggests, separate from the actual phenomenon? Well, that's an interesting question, because one thing that's shifted in my perspective over time is that because I have a background in studying religions, right? I have a religious studies degree. And, and, and what I was taught in terms of what the options were for what generated these kinds of texts and these kinds of followings, uh, there, was a, there was a few, uh, it was a small list of possibilities, right? Uh, but one of them as gods, as immortals, right? Um, so I think what I would do is even making that, that question even larger and and say not only is there a possibility of a ufo phenomenon religion but in what way are all of the major world religions actually either indirectly or directly um products of experiences with the same phenomenon over time and once you start thinking about it that way then you recognize that all of the the largest and most influential belief structures um, meaning making 
uh, methodologies in our history that may well, very well have been products of this phenomenon. So in that sense, it would just be the, the next tick in the uh, in the process that's been going on since uh, the beginning of our civilization, basically. So I'm curious, would you see then our religions as being uh, more so like the result of a game of telephone? Somebody had an initial experience, they talked about it, and we built a mythology around it. Or, as has been suggested, I know in some of Valet's works, are they part of a control mechanism? They were engineered for some explicit purpose. Yeah, that that is the question, I think. You know, or or another way to put it is like I said, direct or indirect, right? It certainly produced meaning structures for us for which we've uh, built our civilization. As much as some people are pretty allergic to religion, you can't really separate the flourishing of Western civilization from its origins in religious uh, traditions, right? And, you know, I, like I said, when I first began this journey, uh, I really felt like, if anything, the, the, the influence must have been indirect, because I would tend to believe what you suggested there in terms of they show up, things happen, but then it gets misinterpreted. One person talks to another. You know, these things don't get actually written down. First, they're oral traditions, right? They eventually get written down several hundred years later, if you're lucky. By then, like you say, a game of telephone's been going on for a while. Who knows how close it is to the original experiences? That's what I, I tended to believe before. And so when people like Tom DeLong have actually suggested that not only that religions were directly authored, basically, by these others, but sometimes even oppositional religions were deliberately authored to keep us divided that at first seemed like a preposterous notion to me and i still don't quite look at it that way but i do now think that i i tend towards uh valet's notion that these meaning structures that ultimately have been very influential were designed in just such a way so as to shape our evolutionary history as a consciousness as a collective consciousness but in a way that we never actually see who's behind the curtain, right? We may have a, or we we set up these characters uh, from religious tradition that are the stand-ins for what's going on behind the scenes because they don't want to bias our our process and our development by giving away exactly who they are. So they, over time, uh, let the process run out. And then part of the process as it proceeds is that our perspective on what gods are and what other options there are for other kinds of intelligence slowly grow, right? So as our notion of the cosmos has become so vast, and we recognize now even physicalist scientists will recognize that based on the, the sheer size of the universe and the number of you know star systems and galaxies there are, that even if it's the exception to the rule, there, there should be life all over the place, right? So then you start saying, oh, okay, could some of the, then you have the ancient aliens theory, right? Like where some of these gods or what were interpreted as gods actually just extraterrestrial civilizations interacting with us. So I would say even all of those questions are almost like baked in to the original religious uh, traditions that you eventually will get there. And this is done again in such a way as you, you have the, the minimal uh, degree of influence without being overbearing, right? Because you kind of have that sort of Star Trek prime directive thing. You don't want to let them know what you really are, but you do it in such a way that you can still shape the the eventually trajectory, uh, the, the eventual trajectory of the entire civilization. I, I mean, so I, another uh, potentially completely unanswerable question, so I apologize that ahead of time, but as someone who has had download experiences and you've, you've had uh, more of a relationship with those intelligences than most, 
I, I'm curious to ask, I mean, do you see that, that sort of interference or control as an innately malicious thing, or is it a beneficial thing, or is it a mixed bag depending on who's doing it? Option three, please. Yeah, okay, <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's my, uh, that's what I pick from the chart, because um, this is one thing I've actually found a little bit challenging and a little bit frustrating about our community, is that so often people want to make this a black or white kind of endeavor, and you have the love and light crowd, and you have the demons and darkness crowd, and sometimes not a lot of overlap, and people very conveniently ignoring the parts of the data set that don't fit their preferred narrative, right? And so um, even while I've had uh, some of my own really profound experiences, and they've definitely changed my perspective, I try to do my best to stay open to all of the data. Um, and and while I've had my own experiences, that doesn't mean I don't take someone else's seriously as well. I have to you know, especially if we see a certain kind of experience, even if it's different than mine, as tested time and time and time again, right? I was talking to someone about this yesterday. Many skeptics of the UFO phenomenon will say, these are just anecdotal stories, right? We don't have actual empirical evidence. But of course, if you have enough stories or narratives, experiences that have been shared that are even cross-cultural and that time and time and time again, you notice these same elements happening, those are data points that eventually give you a data set. And that's a kind of evidence that we need to consider. And when I look at that, I would say, and as well as like just my own experiences and people that I've um, been in association with, I see some across the board kind of intelligences, right? So mine have been all positive. I mean, there, there have been times where I've sensed, um, because this is a big part of it too, is like you, the, the sort of energetic sensing intuitive abilities you develop, right? So it's not like they show up and knock at your door and you go, ah, I know you're a bad dude. It's not like that, but it is sometimes you pick up kind of a nefarious energy and then how you respond to that will often dictate what happens next, right? So, but most of the time I've had very positive encounters. And what's also interesting is I would suggest that I've I've come across data that that leads me to lean towards the direction that the most benevolent ones tend to be the most hands-off. So they are the kind that I think are, are interjecting into our dreams. They're giving us inspirations. They are dropping downloads, but in such a way that they sort of stay out of the picture because they really do want us, like a kindergarten class, to figure out how to do the homework on our own, right. to assembly, assemble the blocks on our own. The ones that are the most directly interventionary that, that you know are behind some of the abduction accounts and things like that, actually think they want to interject themselves into the picture because they're actually trying to dominate and, and intimidate. And so them being part of the picture is part of the message they're trying to deliver. Uh, and so I think we need to pay attention to that. And we get some that are, yeah, kind of like, you know, just seem to stumble into our reality if it's interdimensional or extraterrestrial, whatever, and seem to be curious, but they neither, they're neither nefarious or, you know, or benevolent. They're just something in between. Uh, I think, this speaking of that disclosure question, one of the things I think that will be most shocking to people is just the sheer number of intelligences we're talking about. The, the, the sheer complexity of the consciousness picture as it really exists, as opposed to how it's appeared to us. And I do think part of the control system might also be that for a long period of time, there's been kind of a quarantine around us that's prevented us from the most part from being aware of the, the, the vast number of intelligences all around us, right? And that, that the part of the process is eventually that valve gets turned down a bit, right? We begin to have more and more people experiencing it. 
And, you know, as, as I'm sure you all know, we've had all sorts of accounts suggesting that even like the numbers of encounters with our naval groups and whatnot have been accelerating, you know, to, to a really great degree, which suggests amongst a, a bunch of other data that I've seen, as well as my own personal experiences and downloads that I hear from other experiencers, that something seems to be shifting in our midst. Uh, that that's that some filter some seems to be be turned down a little bit so that we are more aware of these things. But yeah, I think that the bottom line is we need to be aware that uh, just like you know, if you go driving out at night, this is what I often say. You know, there's certain parts of the city you might be wary of going to at a certain time of night, right? And you might want to make sure your doors are locked. Uh, if you go into the jungle, right? It doesn't make any sense to say the jungle's good or the jungle's evil, right? The jungle is a beautiful, tricky, dangerous magnificent, you know, revelatory kind of place, all of those things are true. And you can encounter things that are dangerous and things that are glorious and, you know, will inspire you. And so you, you know, you need to prepare accordingly is what I would say. That is fascinating. Although now I am not going to be unable to, I'm not going to be unable to stop thinking of abductions as like the equivalent of carjackings in a bad part of town. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of that sort of impending shift that you're sensing uh one of the things that we that we noticed throughout both messengers of deception american cosmic and other other things we've read or encountered is the tendency of ufo prophets like a lot of independent prophets uh to foretell um an imminent end of days or in the case of ufo prophets of disclosure being just over the horizon um, and thus far, those predictions haven't materialized um, with the modern kind of with the, with the heat kind of getting ramped up around this idea of of imminent disclosure of this shift that you're that you and others are sensing. Are you ever worried that that might be manufactured by mysterious third parties, um, human or non? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think um, it's a point well taken. And I'm definitely very aware. And I, I would say I'm almost like uh, allergic to the notion of this being the end of days only because I've seen exactly what you've talked about there, where I've seen so many times historically where that's been projected and just been wrong. And people have fell on their face time and time and time again. Uh, I think part of that comes down to when people do have these experiences. They feel so real and so imminent that people are convinced it's happening next week, right? Um, I know people personally who've had encounters like that, that, you know, started like ripping out their grass and planting gardens and things like that because they were convinced that a week from now, grocery stores would be shut down and there was going to be some sort of invasion or something, right? And so they, they really like changed their lifestyle overnight because it seemed so imminent to them. And in the end, it, it didn't happen, right? Not in that way. And I think this is part of the complexity is that these experiences ha- happen in a relationship with time that's different than how we usually experience time in a kind of a linear way. And so sometimes it doesn't translate so well, I think, for the way our brains are, uh, you know, not necessarily hardwired to work, but have been um, brainwashed into working because uh, of how we live out a linear life in kind of our waking day. I think these, these, Sometimes these events seem to happen in a in a frame of reality that is almost more real than real. And so when we come back here, our brains try to translate that as this is going to happen really soon. But I don't think that's necessarily true, nor do I necessarily think it means that the messages that were given to us were nefarious and meant to deceive us. I think that 
um, that can happen. I think there's been cases where you can say it's hard to argue that a certain intelligence that said something was going to happen and it didn't, uh, that certainly seems to be a deliberate deception. Other times, I think uh, it's just a misinterpretation on behalf of the human being. So again, that's uh, you probably noticed by now, I, I opt for complexity whenever I and nuance whenever I try to answer these questions because it's often all of the above and more. Hey, Ed, that's uh, very similar to our philosophy looking at these books we right. read. So, right, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, e even for someone like Jacques Lee, you mentioned he wrote Messengers of Deception. But then in his most recent book about Trinity, you know, he seemed to really be suggesting perhaps this was meant to be some sort of uh, call to humanity to change our ways and to raise our consciousness. So, the same author, right, a few decades later, wrote about the same phenomenon, but in a very, very different way, right? So, so that shows you how that much complexity and nuance there is. Um, in terms of, you know, whether or not, for instance, human actors, uh, perhaps even intelligence groups or whatever, could be deliberately misinforming people, getting them riled up, so as to discredit the whole thing and hopefully tamper it down. We've definitely seen that historically, right? Where um, misinformation is deliberately fed to ufologists Ufologists get all excited, think that, you know, disclosure is imminent. Turns out it's not. And on top of that, they look silly that they believe that in the first place, which sets the whole movement back because people in the general public suddenly think we're, we're, we're gullible, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Always have to be aware of that. Absolutely. And there will always be groups trying to do that. I would say, though, that um, part of what I've become partly privy to is that some of the push for disclosure is coming from some of those internal circles. So you still have, the way I would perceive it based on the, the evidence I've seen is that there are some people who absolutely still do not want this to get out for a whole bunch of reasons. One, because illegal things were done along the way. Others think that they are a justified kind of elite and only they should have access to it. Others generally think that um, this will be too disruptive to our civilization, right? So it's not necessarily always nefarious reasons why they wanna keep it secret. But there are definitely those in that faction. But there's an increasing number of people that were involved in the secret keepers kind of uh, element who do want this out. And look at like the congressional hearings that are being uh, conducted and whatnot as a positive thing, not only because it protects them legally uh, when they you know disclose information, but also that they feel like the you know the we've kind of gotten over the hill perhaps. Perhaps there's too much momentum this time for it to stop. And so while I Never say uh, never say never, um, and I don't want to say I know the timing of these kinds of things and whatnot. But the 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 amount of momentum inertia that that seems to be gaining steam, uh, it certainly seems like we're in a different era than we have been before. Although again, it's always wise to say we don't know exactly how that's going to play out. One thing I I say to people is there this is a dynamic situation in the sense that there's actually multiple parties involved. I would suggest not only of human groups, but even non-human groups that are sometimes aligned with some of those different human groups. And it's a dynamic process of push and pull, and nobody knows exactly how it's gonna play out, but it has definitely uh, hit a new stride and there's some different things happening in our midst because of it. I wonder how much of that is from social media too, just from especially seeing like the volume and the interest, like, you, you know, UFO Twitter is very, very active. And I wonder how much of that is showing just how much like interest and uh, attention people are paying 
to like all the the people in politics for the purposes of disclosure. So I wonder how much of because that had I mean obviously between like the '90s and 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 before social media is is very clearly the biggest difference between those times. So I wonder if that how much influence, if not the vast majority of it, is 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 played into by social media. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know if a Phoenix Lights kind of event happened today, uh, it would be it would be game over, mm-hmm. right? Because because you know, 99% of the people higher than that would have cell phones, would be taking video and photos, but it would be all around the world overnight, right? And, that, and that's, that's actually an exaggeration. It, within a couple of minutes, it would be all over around the world. So absolutely, that's been a, a big player. And I think that's even part of the calculus, I would suggest, in terms of at some point, the secret keepers have to recognize that there's just too much, even though they've tried to hide it, there's too much evidence out there. And, and people are going to put it together either on their own or with the help of AI. This is another big uh, change that's happened is that I'm involved with some people who have built some really, really strong AI, and they've been incredibly committed. In, in fact, so committed that I would suggest that it's not just them. Again, they've been inspired as well, I would suggest by some sort of overarching intelligence to be so thorough in, in digitizing and gathering data uh, from all around the world, sometimes in private libraries that has not seen the light of day in decades, but feeding this all into a digitized database that this AI can chew through and it's able to expose things that in the past could have been hidden, right? So for instance, as an example, in the past, when we actually look now, we find that uh, in certain decades in the 20th century, you'd have these articles that would appear in different newspapers around the world. And what's strange is we can actually see that the exact same phrasing of an entire paragraph, for instance, would show up in a newspaper in Milan and, and New York and London and Cairo, right? And, and you, you realize that like statistically that shouldn't happen by chance, right? And so what you realize is there's some sort of coordinated scheme to basically feed disinformation through the media back then. Back then we had no ability to really recognize it because someone would literally have to go around the world, buy all those newspapers and buy with their human eye, look at it, right? Now all of that's digitized. So a lot of that um, that scheming that happened in in the uh, endeavor of trying to keep this secret now can be exposed. And so I think some people on the inside recognize that it kind of is game over. There's too much data already available that eventually it's going to come out. And they are recognizing, again, part of them, some of them just are ready to get this out. Others recognizing we need to get ahead of the curve here and push this so we have some sort of control about how this rolls out because it's going to happen no matter what at this point. Now, I I want to return to uh, something you mentioned uh, several minutes ago, the whole idea that some of these experiences seem realer than real. Uh, and that's something that we've also encountered, uh, for example, in NDE literature, and I've even seen it in relation to a Bigfoot encounter. So the, my question is, uh, I guess in your mind, is... Th- is disclosure does disclosure end with UFOs and and you know the military encounters, or is it all intimately connected with death and cryptids and basically the whole other spectrum of paranormality? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the latter, and 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 that's why I say you know disclosure is is not the same disclosure your grandfather thought it was, right? And um, I've had some people say to me, I don't understand what the big deal is. So. There's some biological entities uh, that are technologically advanced that have come here from Zeta Reticuli. What's the big deal, right? Like we already know that the the universe is likely teeming with life. 
<clears throat> but the, the deal is that that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Like you said, like somehow the data tells us that this is somehow all connected, right? That that not only are all those things ha have that element of, of high strangeness and more real than real, but for some reason, if you've had one of those kinds of encounters or experiences, you're more likely to have the other ones as well than, than for someone from the average population, which again, begs questions like, so has some sort of switch been flipped on that's allowed you to see now a broader expanse of reality that's always been there? Or is it that there's something innately different about you that allowed you to see the first one and now the others as well? Uh, you know, and again, there's there's a difference between causation and correlation. So even if people like Gary Nolan and whatnot can actually show biomarkers eventually in the brains of experiencers or abductees, for instance, does that mean that that's uh, necessarily a causative kind of thing? It's a causal relationship. Or is, again, if this is happening on some deeper structure of reality, and this is more like a dreamscape, then you're going to have uh, a coherent, cohesive kind of uh, mirroring of that into the dreamscape. But that doesn't mean it's actually what's causing it, right? So these are the questions. But yeah, absolutely, I think that that's the most fascinating aspect of this. And that's why I called my, my podcast Point of Convergence is exactly that. Somehow, this is saying something fundamental about Things like life and death, the, the purpose of existence, the nature of reality, all of it's in play. And the UFO phenomenon seems to be the avenue we're, we're traveling along that's going to get us there. So we shouldn't be looking forward to the UFO landing on the White House lawn. We should be looking for Biden to appear on television with a Sasquatch or ghost in the gray. <laughs> that sounds reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, moving into our last couple of questions here, we we need to ask you about the book. So we know you're working on one, and like many others, we're very excited to get our hands on it. So as much as you can, can you tell us what we can expect to find in the book? And uh, if you'd be willing to, go into some of the delays you were talking about off air. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I actually have two books uh, in, in in the works, and um, one actually speaks to what we began talking about around idealism and, and how my explorations in, into the UFO phenomenon, both in terms of studying the data and the literature, but also my own experiences led me in the direction of idealism. And that I oft, also found in that process, all, of, all sorts of compelling data in other fields of inquiry, like neuroscience and quantum physics and whatnot, that also point in the same direction. So uh, again, the avenue I started with was the UFO phenomenon and general paranormality. But actually, when I started saying, is there anything about uh, coming out of these other fields of study that would suggest another kind of reality that would make sense of the UFO phenomenon, right? So rather than trying to fit the UFO phenomenon into our current conventional model with physicalism, what about trying out some other models and say, if that was the case, would that make sense of the UFO phenomenon? And I think it does to a large degree. And, and, and some version of idealism is, is kind of where I landed. So one of the books is kind of uh, about that process of my own journey, and then the other kinds of fields of inquiry and the data there. Uh, and I spoke sort of along those lines in the in the presentation I gave in New York at the uh, Inquiry into Anomalous Phenomena conference. So that book kind of follows that. The second book is sort of a uh, a question and answer kind of a dialogue format where um, I just like that kind of format. And so questions are poised. 
uh, and then um, I respond to them kind of thing in a, in a Q&A back and forth kind of thing, which I, I like that format because it allows me to really go into in-depth, but in a way that's easy to read, um, that's not so uh, dense in terms of prose. So I'm working on that too. But yeah, in terms of the delay, only because because this has been a uh, an in-tandem cooperative process with some kind of intelligence around me, and sometimes more than one, that has... Um, on several occasions seem to really broaden the scope of my understanding. So I'll have one um, particular understanding and it's not that it's wrong, but it's a fairly narrow one. And I only realize it's narrow when I suddenly, you know, the, the aperture opens up and I recognize, oh, that is part of the picture, but it's within this, this larger picture that's even more expansive and, and ultimately uh, explanatory in its power. So then I have to go, okay, so then how do I, how do I write that into the book, right? And because I don't want to launch something into the world only to then realize, ah, actually, there was like another more expansive layer that even made more sense of that. So I'm I'm sort of waiting on, in a kind of cooperative way, this sort of like a signal in my experience that says, okay, now is the time where you're at a enough of a pausing point where you can actually release this and feel like you're not going to be halfway through some sort of experience that changes your very understanding of what's going on. It reminds me of the latter couple books of Whitley Strieber's the trilogy because like the communion trilogy, just the, because, you know, he was in communication with the visitors throughout the, uh, throughout the entirety of, of all of his books since communion. But he's, I remember that he specifically mentioned something very similar, I think in either transformation or breakthrough and you know what? Those books turned out to be pretty good. So I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great uh, analogy because I remember that too, uh, that, that, you know, his, when you read those books, you see him wrestling with and sometimes re-wrestling with what the whole thing means, right? Yeah. And even going back and forth on whether or not he felt he could trust these intelligences, right? One point you hear him talking about it like it's some sort of grand invitation for the greatest expansion in human consciousness in history, Right. Other times he just wonders, wonders if they're kind of parasites that are, uh, you know, taking advantage of us. I mean, you really see him go back and forth. My experience hasn't been so much in terms of that, you know, back and forth, but more a sense of, like I'll give you an example of a recent one, a recent kind of download that I had uh, that, that, again, was mind-blowing, was that there are certain things I'm aware of that are happening in our reality right now, both in terms of like, uh, and on the governmental side, things that are uh, happening in terms of movements towards disclosure and how that also uh, fits with what I know is happening for some experiencers and this this overwhelming sense that something really is imminent, right, with all the caveats of what we said earlier. Um, and as much as I'm aware of that, and that felt like this really expansive understanding in this most recent download I had, I actually saw that almost like a, as a subroutine of a much more complex series of routines that, that are almost running like an AI kind of system where these different possibility sets are actually, um, they're, they're pursued and they, they get to their conclusion because that somehow feeds back information into something, uh, a larger totality, but that even our experience in this reality as we perceive it is one subroutine amongst a much larger um, series of routines happening. And not only that, but there was times where I actually perceived myself in one of those other routines. So, so I, that's been part of the the really bizarre and profound experience I've had is been able to actually experience myself in different kind of dimensional structures 
but it still feel like me, right? And that's the, the amazing thing. There's something about this, um, this sense that we are all connected to source and we're all sort of manifestations, further iterations of source. And so even when we, we, we move around in terms of a dimensional structure, we still have that sense of being me, even though it might be in a completely different context. So that gives you an idea of what I mean by the second I think I've, I have a pretty expansive uh, understanding of kind of wrap my hands around what this is a little bit, then suddenly it blows open the scope. And I see that that's actually one frame within like a movie kind of thing. So uh, it's it's an ongoingly uh, profound process because of it. You know, it's it's fascinating just because uh, weirdly that immediately reminded me of a concept we read about in the, in Gary Lockman's most recent book, Dreaming Ahead of Time, where he deals with precognition. I, I cannot for the life of me remember whose theory this was, but he was describing it. This whole idea that basically our time flow is a river without borders because you can't stand outside of it. But someone has to be observing the speed of the, the river that you're standing in. That's observer two who's in their own time flow. And then there's observer three who observes them. And it's still you all the way up. But like when observer one dies, the others continue going. It's almost like we are uh, fractal entities spread out across various time streams. That's exactly the term I keep coming back to, both both because of the literature I've studied and also my own experiences. Fractal, absolutely. There seems to be absolutely a fractal nature to reality, and that helps us make sense of all sorts of different phenomena, not only the different others that we encounter, but even how, and I often say to people, you know, I apologize ahead of time for the complexity and the nuance, but part of the complexity here, even around disclosure, is that who we are is much more multifaceted and multidimensional and fractal in nature than we have thus far realized. So sometimes people will say, how do you know you're getting that download from an extraterrestrial or interdimensional intelligence? How do you know it's not your higher self? And I say, fair point. Sometimes it is my higher self, right? And, and sometimes the even the division between these entities is still based on a model that we've already shown is not really tenable. So so all of these questions are, are open-ended and um, and Absolutely. Fractal is is central to the whole thing, I think. And we need to think about that not only in terms of who these others are and these different interpenetrating realities, but even who we are. You know, the, I, I couldn't help but think and this, I think, just is an interesting way of saying it's how much of this is all connected. But the, I, the idea of a download experience, what it, it always makes me think of is like I, I practice like a, a modern day form of druidry. And in Druidry, there's a, it's a Welsh word called Awen. Awen means inspiration. And in Druidry, what Awen is, is this divine inspiration that seems to come to you from the other world, as they call it. And so, like, what we do as Druids is we seek out Awen. We're trying to, to get that divine inspiration. And so much of what you said, especially about how, like, it, it, it had you, like, help you come to uh, almost like come to uh, an understanding of yourself makes me think of everything that they've talked about for thousands of years inside uh, all of these other, like inside some of these old world faiths like Druidry. And it's just fascinating to me that the, there's these things that have been around for so long and we're still having these kinds of experiences. Absolutely. And um, it's funny when you think about it because like you say, even, even with physicalism, it's a very fairly narrow uh, uh, description of reality, or as uh, Ken Wilber would say, it's the flat landing of reality, right? It's like sort of taking 
one surface layer and, and reducing everything to that, collapsing it into that one dimensional layer and thinking that you're somehow actually describing reality. All it does is it makes you feel temporarily confident that, and good about the fact that you feel like you've grasped reality, but all the other things are still happening, right? They're just not being accounted for in the conventional system. So you have all these people having these experiences in, uh, you know, everywhere you look all, all across the world, uh, while the, the mainstream theory in, in play says it's not possible, which is kind of preposterous when you think about it. But along those same lines of what you said there, I think what's also fascinating to me is that a big part of my spiritual background so initially was sort of like coming out of re revealed religions like Christianity, but then I really took a turn and was equally inspired by non-dual teaching and uh, Advaita Vedanta and Buddhism and Zen specifically, and how much idealism fits with that, right? And how much that fits with the downloads I've had. So I've sort of had like three levels of confirmation, you could say, uh, telling me that reality is something like this, both both in uh, non-duality traditions, both in my own downloads, and both in idealism as a conception of reality. And so, and and yeah, so to me, all of that is pointing in some very interesting directions. But as you say, we can see evidence, I think, corroborating some of these notions through different uh, traditions that have existed across the world. Well, that is fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for that uh, for that answer, as well as all your other ones. We only have one more question for you, and it should be the easiest. What's next for Darren, and where can people find your work? Well, um, I have a couple different podcasts that I regularly uh, work with. So there's Point of Convergence, which is me doing a, a solo 30 to 40 minute kind of uh, treatise on a particular topic to do with the phenomenon and these other points of convergence we've talked about. That happens every second week. And then on the in-between weeks, I'm joined by, by my friend Nathan, and we do Liminal Frames, which is kind of a conversational uh, podcast around some of these same topics, but a back and forth. Um, and I've definitely uh, picked up the amount of work I'm doing in this area, uh, more of a kind of full-time endeavor. Uh, where I'm, I'm really uh, pouring a lot more energy into producing content, uh, doing more research, both, both personally with different protocols I'm trying and also just uh, grappling with the full body of literature, uh, working with some others as well. And lastly, I'll say there are some really exciting things coming down the line that I can't uh, announce yet, but uh, we'll probably um, be announcing in the next uh, few months kind of thing, um, that, that just some really uh, exciting cooperative things I'm a part of that, uh, again, feels like just the latest iteration of this insane and profound uh, series of synchronicities uh, that have been happening for me for the last couple of years, but especially the last year. Yeah. Well, we will wait on bated breath for whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> so thank you so, so much for giving us some of your time today. As always, this was a genuine delight. Uh, we, we always love talking to you. And we always like listening to your show. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I love being on with you all, and uh, you hold a special place in my heart because you were one of my first interviews. So uh, Heck yeah. I'm happy to do that whenever you want me. Oh, wait, we absolutely will. You're going to get sick of us. I was going to say, you're, we're going to hold you to that. So, Aw, Darren likes us. <laughs> I do, I do, indeed.
take a walk.